Welcome to Financial Crime Matters with Kieran Beer. I'm Kieran Beer, Chief Analyst and Director of Editorial Content for ACAMS. In this episode, I talk with James Barnacle, Chief of the Financial Crimes Section within the Criminal Investigative Division of the FBI and Assistant Section Chief Christopher Soyez. Jim, Chris, and I discuss how the FBI fights fraud and tries to recover the proceeds of scams on behalf of victims. During our discussion, Jim credits bank suspicious activity reports with being the primary catalyst for the Bureau's successful investigations into COVID-19-related scams, while also chiding some in the industry for an increasing reluctance to aid their customers and the FBI in recovering the proceeds of other kinds of fraud. I hope you find the podcast informative and that you'll subscribe to Financial Crime Matters, either on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or SoundCloud. Here we go. Here we are at the Las Vegas Assembly, ACAM's Las Vegas Assembly. I am really privileged to have with me James Barnacle, the chief of the Financial Crime Section, Criminal Investigative Division of the FBI, and Christopher Soyez, who is Assistant Section Chief at the Federal Bureau of Investigation with Jim. Welcome. Thank you. And I want to just have people understand a little bit about what you do in the financial crime section. Sure. I'll just give you a little bit about how we're structured. Underneath the financial crime section within our criminal investigative division, uh, Jim and I oversee five separate units. Three of those units are operational units, so they're supporting investigations out in the field. The other two uh, are more support units. So first, we have our economic crime unit. Economic crime is supporting all our securities fraud investigations throughout the field, large-scale Ponzi schemes. They maintain partnerships with the SEC, CFTC. They're handling some of our bigger cases uh, in that space. Our second unit, another unit that we have operationally is our healthcare fraud unit. So they're working major healthcare cases across the country, supporting all of those investigations throughout the fifth to sixth field offices. We have our money laundering forfeiture bank fraud unit. So our money laundering cases, our asset forfeiture program lies there. Again, operational support to the field. Uh, we have two support units. Uh, we oversee the forensic accounting unit, which has over 600 forensic accounting supporting investigations across all of their FBI threats. And finally, our newest unit is our virtual assets unit, supporting again, across all FBI investigative threats, anything involving virtual assets, helping support all of those ages in the field working those cases. So just a very high overview of how we're kind of structured, but really in the financial crime space, trying to offer as much support to the field as we can. You mentioned Medicare medical fraud and Medicare fraud. Is that, is, this, is, this is a huge thing. And we didn't actually talk about whether we were going to talk about that. That seems like such a huge area. You know, we're just seeing, I think, particularly in some parts of the country, am I, am I wrong? Florida is, is huge in this. Can you talk a little bit about that effort? Because that's a lot of money. That's, uh, it's like 10% fraud. Uh, and the only thing that rivals that is the PPP fraud. And I don't know if you have anything to do with going after some of the COVID-19 fraud. Yeah, so both things. We manage the pandemic fraud-related cases uh, in the Bureau. So we have about just under 3,000 cases, uh, mostly PPP fraud or on under how many again? Three. Just under 3,000. Oh, 3,000. Yeah, so it's 29. It's a lot, but I mean, there's roughly tons of cases. We've had significant actions in the last couple of years. Arrested 2,000 people, uh, seized uh, quite a bit of money, but uh, on the scale of the, the fraud, it's really insignificant. It's a matter of people where we've arrested. 
and seize money. And all of our federal law enforcement partners are working these cases as well. So the, there's the OIG, um, several OIGs, the Small Business Administration, Department of Labor, and then there's a pandemic-related IG that was created just to view of the fraud. And then all eight, so HSI, our IRS, CI, Secret Service, and Post Service, all our federal partners are working cases as well. So multiply the numbers of cases. And, and we have made a dent in that, but we have a lot of work to do. A lot of people now are back to work. Uh, the federal government, I believe, is going back to work full time. Everyone has that pandemic in their rearview mirror. But the reality is we're still doing a lot of work on the fraud side of it. And as you know, Congress changed the statute of limitations on that to 10 years. And so we have a long time to work those cases. So I, I don't want people to think it's on the back burner for us. It's not. It's showing top three priorities of finance crimes to grow. And I think there's been a couple of new uh, investigative units uh, launched, actually, in August or something related to that out of DOJ. I don't know where, you, you know. And, and I think just the outrage about taking advantage of the country in a very difficult time. Yeah, so DOJ appointed a pandemic fraud coordinator, a COVID-19 fraud task force, which the FBI is a member of that, along with many other federal agencies. Uh, that It's a, assisting U.S. attorneys out of Austin, Texas, and he leads that effort on on behalf of bigger DOJ. Uh, in the Bureau, uh, we prioritized that at the very beginning of the pandemic. I mean, I mean yeah. when we shut down, we started doing outreach calls with financial institutions and financial institutions were telling us, hey, a lot of these PPP applications are fraudulent. We're seeing a lot of newly created shell companies or corporations and they're requesting. So red flags were going up right away. SARS were being filed right away. We opened in the first couple weeks of the PPP program hundreds of cases, and every single one of them was a direct referral from financial institution. They reached out. They said, hey, we're going to file a SAR. Here's the lay of the land. And we initiated investigations that way. We still open our cases off the SARs and referrals from, from banks. So it's really, really important in that space. So that was the PPP side of it. The other side of it is unemployment fraud. And so... We have another unit. It's the economic crime unit that's been in existence for a long, long time, but they take the lead on that type of fraud. And so Pete, we, we, we have actually categorized it as two separate tranches. The PPP, because it's direct application with the bank, is bank fraud. And that's the statute that's generally charged, the bank fraud statute. The unemployment is just fraud against government. We're working that in a different unit and that unit prioritize that. It's interesting in the FBI, is fraud against the government is traditionally part of our public corruption program. And we have a unit that oversees corruption of domestic public officials. And they normally have the fraud against the government program, and it makes sense for them to have it. But the Bureau felt that at the onset of the pandemic, if we put a lot of those corruption agents on unemployment fraud, they would be taken off of their main objective, which is corrupt domestic officials. And so we shifted that during the pandemic to our economic crimes unit, we're just gonna stay with that for a while. Eventually we'll go back to the Hallows to do it, but it was a temporary surge of resources, if you will. The other thing you mentioned was healthcare fraud. Just circling back to that, it is actually our biggest fraud threat. It is the number one threat for fraud. If you look at the Treasury's money laundering risk assessments in the last, they do them every other year, the new ones coming out in January, 2024. The last couple said the number one generated fraud proceed and number one thing for money laundering was fraudulent proceeds from healthcare fraud. So it is huge. And so we have the Medicare program, we have the Medicaid program, 
And then we all, we have all the private health insurance companies. So that's what our program is working. So we're working both of those. We have about 400 agents roughly uh, devoted to that. They work it full time. Our main partner in that is a health and human services uh, office of inspector general. They are fabulous partners and they work with us on pretty much every investigation we have, we do jointly with them that is Medicaid or Medicare programs being frauded. If it's a private insurance company, HHS doesn't work that, so we would work that on our own or perhaps with another federal or state or local agency. But we have resources all over the country. In Miami alone, we have three healthcare fraud squads. They work at full time. It's a strike force. And so Department of Justice created 13 strike force offices where they co-locate prosecutors from the fraud section, local prosecutors from that local U.S. Attorney's Office. So for instance, the Florida would be Southern District of Florida and our FBI agents and HHS OIG agents. And may, in Florida, they sit in a building together and they work the cases together. Unbelievable success in those programs. The number of arrests and statistics are insane. The amount of forfeiture is significant. We could work it all day and probably not completely mitigate the fraud bubble. Well, I, I, you know, obviously, given the audience that we have, my question becomes, what's the role of financial institutions in helping you to uncover help fraud? Is there a role or is it really, are they really peripheral? Are they seeing billings? Can they be alert? Can they come up with the SARS? What would you tell them to look for? I would tell them that it, it's a great question and, and obviously the right question for the audience here and the membership. Two kinds of healthcare fraud. One is the drug diversion. So we see a lot of medical providers, healthcare providers that are diverting opioids for drug purposes, right? And, and as you know, about 110,000 people died last year of overdose. And a lot of that was because of the worded opioids. Now, part of that was fentanyl and other drugs, um, but that's a big problem. So financial institutions should look for large cash deposits or cash deposits of multiple institutions by medical providers, right? A, a, a medical practice is not a cash business. It, it, it's generally insurance and everyone in the United States is required to have health insurance. Uh, well, legally supposed to, but no, now there's no penalties for that. Um, but people have a health insurance. So, so naturally, when you go to a doctor, you provide your health insurance card. Maybe you make a, a co-payment, $20, $50, whatever it is. But it's not a cash-intensive business. So even if people are making a co-payment to cash, it's probably not going to add up to a huge sum. If there's huge dollar deposits, it is an obvious red flag to us. No. And that's where we see in the opioid diversion, right? Uh, uh, someone... A bad guy, a middleman will facilitate someone that wants the opioids and a doctor or a medical provider providing the opioids. It could be a pharmacist as well. Um, they'll pay a cash payment. You have four or $500 to write that illicit prescription. And so we see a and lot. You said there's another, one other. Yeah. So, so, well, I would say one other thing is like we see doctors and we've had examples where we've arrested doctors that are buying vacation properties. You know, or they're saving up for retirement. They're at the back end of their career. Let's make a whole bunch of money, cash. Then they got to put it into the financial system so they can live off of it. So we see that. We have great examples of cases that are adjudicated we can share with ACAMS. On the other side is, is that the billing schemes and fraudulent medical treatments, yeah, which yeah. I don't necessarily need to get into, but the billing schemes, you would see the same. And a lot harder for a bank or financial institution 
to see that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the money's it's going to appear legitimate. It's going to be coming in from Medicare, or Medicaid, some government. It's fraudulent procedures it's, and that sort of thing, but it's all gone through the. It is, but I tell you what, the financial institutions do pick up on it, right? I, I'm not so great with the typologies there, but I know they file SARS, yeah. and there's a significant number of SARS filed. On it. So the banks are finding out typologies, and they're doing a really good job with communicating that. Well, as it's clear uh, here, it's all about banks and all about uh, financial institutions that have suspicious reporting responsibilities. So tell me a little bit about you handle the money laundering case. I guess you support like there's 56 bureau offices and you would handle the support for maybe the, the financial expertise and whatever on money laundering issues. You can tell me how that works. But in asking this, what are you seeing out there with regard to money laundering? And then again, of course, I want to tie it back to financial institutions. But what are you seeing out there? Some money laundering is changing nuanced, but it's always stays the same, right? <clears throat> so we're seeing old cash smuggling has never stopped. So mostly for narcotics tra uh, trafficking and also for human trafficking. And HSI does a great job on the human trafficking side. But on the narcotics side, you know, FBI, DEA, HSI, many agencies are working that. But we see both cash smuggling. So we see money pickups and we see couriers and we see money trying to get from one jurisdiction to another. So for example, $100,000 of drug proceeds in New York City may be getting picked up and there might be like a Hawala transfer to, to Europe and then there's a transfer on the other side. We try to interdict and get involved in that where we put an undercover agent, uh, a law enforcement officer into that, to that scheme to gather intelligence to figure out where the money goes. The bad guys want to get the money into the financial system. Right, because they want to buy cars, they want to run their business operations, they want to buy houses and everything else. So they're going to always try to get the money to make it look good, clean the money, and they get it into the financial institutions. Cash or some kind of instrument from an LLC or something like that that isn't quite, that's fishy. Little fagazi, right? <laughs> Little fagazi. Like, that's how we talk in the money lottery realm. We also see the shell corporations all on the Southwest border, right? So you, you may see a mom and pop business. It's a cash-intensive business, but all of a sudden they're doing a lot more money than they would normally do. No. It's indicative or it's an indicator of laundering activity for narcotics chefing. That's one side of laundering, right? The bigger side for us is obviously we're the financial crime section, so we're working in the fraud space and in, in that part of, of it. So what typologies do we see in the fraud space for money laundering? And, and they're different because a lot of times fraud proceeds are already in the financial institution. So a right. victim of fraud isn't going to go and pay cash. They're simply going to wire transfer money from one institution to another institution. And then the bad guys ultimately are going to want to live their lavish lifestyle. It's a little harder to see in that fraud space, but it's still the same things. Third-party facilitators, whether they're accountants, they're lawyers, they're middlemen. We see lots of shell companies being created around the globe, not just in the United States. So for years, we were seeing a lot of shell companies created in Hong Kong. We saw shell companies created in, in Europe. We saw shell companies created in, in some jurisdictions in the United States where it's easy to open a corporation or an LLC. We see Chinese money laundering organizations, right? So as everyone knows, there's a restriction to get $50,000. Uh, there's a limit. Folks that live in China can only export or transfer money out of China, they're limited to $50,000 per year. And so you know, Chinese folks with means or have money that they want to get out of China will use these money laundering organizations and 
there's a lot of cash in the United States for this narcotics smuggling. So we see a union of that. And we see Chinese money laundering organizations operating in the United States where they're picking up the cash. I pay money in China. I come here and get cash from drug dealers who have lots of cash. It's not necessarily the person from China that's trying to get the money out that's picking it up, but it's some middleman here. Some middleman who says, I can arrange this for you. Right. So we see in these organizations moving money for narcotics trafficking, moving fraud proceeds, for example, business email compromise proceeds, or the, the, the now elusive butchering proceeds. We see it with the unemployment fraud. So in the middle district of Pennsylvania, uh, charged a case the last week of August, and it was a money water case. Three men based in the Los Angeles area. A Chinese organization was applying for unemployment benefits in Pennsylvania to the tune of $60 million in a very short period of time. And the money was being moved through a variety of shell companies and financial institutions in the United States. The FBI honed in on three people in California we made an investigation and charged them with money laundering. The bulk of the money that went into their accounts from the unemployment claims was transferred to China. So they were third-party facilitators, and that was their role. They got a cut of it. Who are these people profile-wise? Are they lawyers, bankers? Are they insiders in a financial institution, or they're just... They're just guys. They're just they're a business owners. They had a business. They did. They got it. So this leads to a question um, about recouping some of that fraud money. And I mean, I've always been impressed uh, that you do that fairly well. Uh, and if the fraud victims are supposed to go to IC3, thanks Chris, IC3.gov. But we're settling transactions a lot quicker and than the fintechs that are set up with multiple payment fintech products. This stuff is disappearing a little more. Tell me a little bit about the challenges. And- yeah, so Jim's right about some of the money laundering typologies we see and, and the introduction of cryptocurrency adds some complications to that. The idea of anonymity, right? And so cryptocurrency moves very fast for us. Um, and so we see a lot of proceeds of fraud schemes moving and that's kind of the purpose of our virtual assets unit to support those cases. So, you know, with the cryptocurrency, it has to be introduced into the banking system and then moved and then off-ramped, right? And so we want to be at those checkpoints where we can try to seize those funds once we tie them to a fraud scheme or some other illicit activity. So the introduction of cryptocurrency as a tool just further kind of enhances the ability to launder those funds. And so we are in that space. We do want people to go to IC3 so we can collect that data. You know, we want to target those wallets that are collectively taking victim funds and fraud funds. So, you know, piece there that really adds a challenge for us. But along some of the same schemes we've seen for years, just adding that piece to it. The one thing with crypto that's really interesting is a lot of people buy cryptocurrency as a speculative investment, a legitimate purpose to buy cryptocurrency. In the in the fraud space, we see people using cryptocurrency as a pitch. It could be an illicit pitch, right? Here's this great investment opportunity, we're gonna steal your money. But the other side of it is the ease and quickness which money can move from one jurisdiction to another. With crypto. With crypto. You know, as crypto. Yeah. Right, as crypto, right? You can put it in a wallet and you can withdraw it conceivably from any place in the world. But at the end of the day, the bad guys still want the money in fiat currency. And I think there's the drawback of crypto. A lot of people aren't using cryptocurrency to purchase things. You can't walk into a lot of businesses and still use crypto. I know a lot of proponents for crypto keep saying you can, 
And every once in a while, you see a company that pops up and says, hey, we're going to take crypto payments. A lot of times, major corporations say that, and then they off-ramp a couple months later, and they say, hey, that wasn't the best idea. We're not going to do that anymore. And so, not disparaging crypto, but in a way, I am, right? Because fiat currency is still king. Right. And bad guys want to get that money out. And look, the thing with crypto, when I first started hearing about crypto 12, 13, 14 years ago, there was Bitcoin. And then there was 16,000 tokens. And then there was 30,000 tokens, which I think is what we're saying now. And how many of those tokens are trapped, right? If we go on the major VASPs and you look at cryptocurrencies, there's a handful. You see the daily price and the daily movements, it, and it kind of looks like a stock ticker. But what about the other 30,000 points? No one's tracking them. And so if people are investing in those, I'm not going to begrudge your investment choice, but you know, obviously it's a risky investment. And people aren't necessarily going to take their money and their hard-earned capital and put it in such risky investments. But the cartels or the fraudsters, they don't have a problem with it because it's not their money to begin with. So they're going to move the money. And if there's a little bit of a risk in the fluctuation of the cryptocurrency, they can live with that because the ability to move it from one jurisdiction to the next so quickly. But they still got to get in for that cash. Right. That's really important with the finance institutions. And that is where they come in. Well, I, I don't want to dwell on this too long, but I, when I was talking to you about fraud, I mean, we're talking about like traditionally you clawed back wires that went into a financial institution, but you then are, what you're telling me is in addition that a component of that sometimes that we know with the pig butchering that fraudsters have someone buy crypto and that's not like it goes through a banking wire system. But, and I think you're also saying that some of the stuff that went through a wire in a bank quickly can end up in crypto. So maybe just to clarify that and saying that. And I think you're talking about how you trace this stuff and it does have to come back in. How much though there's challenges with privacy, coins and tumblers and that sort of thing. I mean, is the future still bleak? I, I heard it described to me once that tracing crypto was a little bit sometimes like following a red cap in a uh, football stadium. Last year, about 800,000 claims were filed at IC3.gov. And so any victims, if you're in a financial institution, you have a customer that comes to say they're a victim, you, you should encourage them to file a complaint at IC3.gov. We believe uh, complaints are underreported. We think the victims of fraud underreport their fraud. It really takes the financial institutions to push people to do that. We really are asking for the help of the financial institutions. Now, internally, how do we handle those complaints? So if someone goes into ic3.gov, they file their complaint. They can be a victim of a business email compromise, a romance scheme, cryptocurrency scheme, any kind of law enforcement impersonation schemes. There, there's a variety of schemes we're seeing. There's probably about a dozen that are really, really popular. And then there's about 30 overall, kind of our top 30. We publish a report every year, uh, an annual report. There's two different reports. One is the annual report. So the 2022 annual report was published in, I believe, March of this year. And then we do an elder report. So we take those victims that were 60 and over and we look at that and we look at that data. We published that, it was late May or early June of, of this year that that was publishing. So as those victim complaints come in, we basically have uh, like alert alarms like you would have uh, at a financial institution. And if it's something that happened recently, the victim wired money or transferred money to something that they're now coming back and say it's fraudulent, we have two processes to try to, to call the money. One is a process which we call a financial fraud kill chain. 
And so we work with our FIU, FinCEN, and we go to FIU and we say, hey, FinCEN, this victim is claiming they lost money. Here's the information, the wire transfer information that they provided. And so we use that on foreign transfers. So when the money goes from an American to a foreign bank, and we ask FinCEN to then intervene and they go direct with the foreign FIU and they flag that to that FIU and say, hey, that wire transfer coming to this jurisdiction to this bank appears to be fraudulent. And we're going to ask the FIU to take action on that. And so a lot of the, the global FIUs are working together on that. And we do we have the same courtesy for fraudulent transfers that come into the United States. No. And they go for the FIU. The other side of it is the domestic transfer system. So we, we have a recovery asset to you. And so that team, the red alerts go off and there's wire transfer and the majority of these frauds, there's a domestic transfer before an international transfer. And so we will reach out. We basically have a list of contact information to banks. And when the money went to the recipient bank, we will call that recipient bank. Yeah. And we'll say, hey, just to let you know, a victim's complaining and they're saying this is a, a proceeds of fraud and that count as a recipient of fraud. We can send a letter, a freeze letter. We can intervene with asset forfeiture. We do not have the resources to do that on every case. And so I, and I don't want the banks to go away and think, hey, the FBI is going to intervene. We're going to send some kind of hold harmless letter or freeze letter or asset forfeiture and come and pursue this criminally. That, that's, a, that's a misnomer. It's not going to happen in that, in that space. So a lot of times we're just alerting the banks. We'll tell the customer, hey, here's where it went. You, you know, bank to bank, go direct, or customer to bank, go direct. And we don't necessarily uh, intervene much more than that. However, in that space, last year, we recovered 70% of the fraud proceeds that were transferred domestically. Mm-hmm. So great success because the financial institution's cooperation. Yeah. Without their cooperation, we recovered nothing. Yeah. Um, so that's that side of it. And then on the crypto side of it, where we talked, a little bit different. And so we're seeing victims of fraud a lot of times make that payment in crypto, right? So it's whether it's a law enforcement impersonation scheme, so we see it, the FBI director is making a phone, I got, I, at work, I got a phone call and the guy told me he was the director of the FBI. What he doesn't realize is on my phone and it would say director's office, and it did not say that. So I was pretty confident uh, that it wasn't the director, but it was a 202 number, so I wasn't entirely sure. And uh, in his thick accent, he continued to tell me, which was not really um, something I would normally hear from the director's office, but... Uh, he told me how the FBI was coming for me and unless I paid $400, I would be arrested and they were gonna arrest me today. And so I played along with him for about three minutes and then I finally say, I'm with the FBI. And he responds back, you with the FBI, so what? FBI can still arrest you. I'm like, my gosh, he's gonna double down. And he doubled down. And it just kind of went on and on. And finally, I just said, come, you know, come on down. And I gave our address on Pennsylvania Avenue in the Northwest of Washington, D.C. I've yet to be arrested for not paying that $400. Yes. But um, these guys are- Did he want crypto for yeah, so, like, yeah. so what they want, they'll do a lot of things. Debit cards, no. credit cards, uh, prepaid credit cards, no. and crypto. Those are kind of- you know, my boss has several times asked me to go out and get gift cards yep. uh, or, or uh, not, of course, really. Yeah. So, you know, we're just about out of time. I think we've covered a lot of interesting stuff here and stuff that's really important to you, financial institutions. And I guess this is a chance in a, in a nice way, 
you know, what are the things that the financial institutions are doing that are good in terms of how you work with them? And, and maybe are there some things like, hey, guys, maybe don't do that in the future or something like that. I'll put you on the spot there. You know, we, we often talk about the extent of the fraud when you see how many complaints we get, the dollar loss, right? And we oftentimes say it's not a problem we're going to arrest ourselves out of. And so we really ask for support from the financial institutions and the education piece, working closely with them to put out PSAs. They know their customers better than we do and look for those anomalies and really try to educate and direct them to us or to IC3. So that piece is, would be the ask or the help that we would really want to help educate the public and help do what we can to try to stop mostly re-victimization because we see it over and over, especially in the elderly population. Yeah, so know your customer is the big thing. The question is, do banks have a fiduciary responsibility to their customers? Maybe I won't go into depth on that, but if a financial institution knows their customers and truly knows their customers, are they stepping in to stop those fraudulent transfers? And we see community banks and smaller banks do a wonderful job in that space. They know their customers. When that customer comes in to wire money out or take a transfer out or to uh, withdraw money to, to make that investment or pay that impersonation scheme or whatever it is, the bank stops it and they file a SAR. Big banks do a good job in that space as well. But what we would ask, know your customer, intervene where you can, file a SAR, work with us. We are willing to put together more public service announcements. We're looking to put together brochures that you think you could hand out to your customers if they appear to be a victim. If your customer comes to you to report being a victim of a crime, are you obligated to take action on their behalf? Or does your institution just wash your hands, say we have a no indemnification policy and too bad, you already wired the money out, there's nothing we can do. And we do see financial institutions that do that I don't think that's the best business practice in the world. I mean, I'm, we're not going to name and shame them, but we'd ask, do better for your customers. It's really important. As Chris said, you can't arrest our way out of it. We need the financial institutions. We need all the government agencies to come together. And it really has to be uh, public service announcements, awareness campaigns, education campaigns. No one is going to make a quick buck on crypto. You're not going to get that new great investment that's coming in. And uh, it's hard to say that for people. A lot of people have already made million dollars in the space or billions of dollars. But the regular mom and pops out there that think they're going to get quick rich, it's just not going to happen. Well, I think that sums it up some advice to financial institutions and to individuals that are not being very wary with their money. James Barnacle, chief of the financial crime section, uh, criminal investigations division at the FBI and uh, Christopher Soyez, Assistant Section Chief at the FBI. Thanks for being here, guys. Thanks, Karen. Thank you. Thanks for listening to my conversation with the FBI's James Barnacle and Christopher Soyez. I hope you found the podcast compelling and that you will subscribe to Financial Crime Matters on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or SoundCloud so that you'll receive an alert for each new podcast because Financial Crime Matters to me and to you. See you next time.